chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 14, and here's the outline as you see this coming up, um, walk in love, the first two verses, deeds of darkness, sexual immorality, greed, filthy talk, verses 3 through 6, and then People of the Light, 7 through 14. And uh, while you're flipping to Ephesians 5, I want to invite you uh, to our place. Do we have a slide, that first slide? Let's go back one. You're basically all invited to our house for a Christmas celebration. And so this is just Lisa and I's way of saying thank you. Thank you for being the, the church family you are. Thank you for loving our family the way you do. Thank you for carrying one another, for bearing one another's burdens, for praying for another. Thanks for using your, your gifts and your time and your treasures to advance the kingdom of God. Thanks for being who you are. It's a joy to pastor this church family. And so I love you, Lisa loves you, and we are just thankful for you. And so we'd love to for you to hop online and uh, get the details wherever that, that hits you right there, uh, either the Friday the, the 16th or Friday the 30th right after Christmas. Let's go to God in prayer before we go to God and his word. Father, we ask you to open up our hearts that we might be full-hearted, Lord, to see whatever you have for us this morning. We ask it through the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Hear God's word for me and for you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. You might have heard recently, a 99-year-old Florida woman was recently married to her fourth husband. And so in this small town, a reporter arrived at her house to inquire about her newly acquired husband. 
and she replied that he actually still owned a funeral home. Curious about the other husbands, the reporter asked about them. The woman paused for a moment and said, well, the first one was a banker. The second one was the master of ceremonies of a three-ring circus. And the third was actually a minister. And the reporter exclaimed, wow, what diversity. Those guys have nothing in common. Why did you marry each one of them? She said, well, that's easy. I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. You got to throw out a dad joke every once in a while. And a preacher joke. There was once, just once, a very long time ago, a very boring sermon. I think it was in the Methodist church or the, or the Baptist church. I, I forget which. And so the, the parishioners, after this boring sermon, all falling, filing out of the church with their heads down, never even making eye contact with the pastor. Yet at the end of the line, the pastor saw a ray of hope. At the end of the line, there was a saint who always commented about his preaching. And so when this person arrived, the person looked directly into, at the pastor in his eye, shook his hand and said, Pastor, today your sermon reminded me of the peace of God and the love of God. Wow, thought the pastor. What an encouragement. Can you tell me what, nobody's ever said anything like that ever before about my sermon. Can you tell me what, what really struck you about the sermon? Well, the parishioner said, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding and the love of God because it endured forever. <laughs> and with that, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Gospel truths for gospel living. And today I want to give you five different ways to fight sin. As the theologian Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the head. And I've noticed over the years that many Christians basically have one strategy to fight sin. A combination of willpower and resolutions. And so I want to tell you this morning, if that's your only strategy, you're basically signing up to get hit in the head with sin. That is a failing strategy. So today I want to put more tools in your Christian tool bag for you to fight for increasing joy, for you to fight for following Christ, to fight for walking away from the sin that hurts you and damages the lives of those around you. And so here we go, and I want to ask and begin by this, asking this question. A very simple question is this. To parents, how do you parent a teenager? And teenagers, now that I've got your uh, attention, how do you want your parents to parent you? One option is to lecture your teenagers. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. But teenagers, how do you typically experience that, right? You love the lecture, do you not? You love it. And so they experience that more as a lecture, less as an invitation. And I've given my fair share of those over the years as well. But as I, on my best days as a father, 
When I parent my teenager and my preteen son, what do I want to do? I want to call out something that is distinct and true and beautiful about them from their core identity. And so I hope my sons are often hearing things like this. The Carters are people who? The Carters are people who practice forgiveness. The Carters are the people who show grace to one another. The Carters are people who have two things to do today. Love God and love others. You are created to follow Christ. Don't you see how beautiful it is? And then I might even call out something specific and unique to who they are. And I want to pull it out of their soul and their life and show it to them like a diamond, even when they can't see it for themselves. This is what is, uh, Paul is doing, I want to argue, in the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God. The word is mimetes, from which we get the English word mimic. Mimic God. And so Paul doesn't start by lecturing these Christians, don't do this, do that, don't do that, do this. But first, he reaches for something in them that is objectively true about them. Something that is deeply true inside of them. Something beautiful about who they are, their core identity. He reminds them who they are and whose they are. Be imitators of God. How? As beloved children. And so in Ephesians, you've already been told lots about your core identity. So I wanted you to do something for me just for a second. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just hear all the ways that you have been told about your identity. I just want it to wash over your lives and over your hearts and over your souls. Just close your eyes. Hear these. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You've been adopted as beloved children into God's family. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, forgiven of your sins. God has lavished upon you grace upon grace upon grace and all wisdom and insight. You've been sealed, been given inheritance with the promised Holy Spirit. You have an undying hope to which he has called you. You've been made alive in Christ even when you were dead. You've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're God's poema, his workmanship specifically crafted and created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you are gaining strength even today to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ for you. These are all the promises of who you are and whose you are in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. You can open your eyes. Now, can't you hear the commandments? Now, aren't you fired up to go live for Christ based on who you are in Christ. Gospel truths always precede gospel living. And so Paul is always reminding you of your identity, of your family resemblance, 
the moral commandments in Ephesians to you do not rest on your willpower, nor on your promises and tears and shame to amend your behavior, nor all your noble resolutions to do better next time. God, I promise this time I'm going to do better. I promise you that. No, all the moral commandments in Ephesians rest upon a received and a given and a changed identity. Remember whose you are and who you are. And so I can't emphasize this enough. I can't overstate this enough. If you want to progress in the Christian life, if you want to grow in the Christian life and not be static, not plateau, not stall out, if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ and not follow your own fleshly ways, you must never forget who you are and whose you are. You cannot go out into the world and fight sin. You cannot go out and resist the world if you forget your true identity. Sin happens in our lives, does it not, during periods or during moments of spiritual amnesia. When you choose to look away and when you choose to forget who you are, you forget your core identity for a season or for a moment. The gap between the doctrine we say we believe and the way we actually live is a workroom for the enemy. And so Paul tells you, be imitators of God, what? As beloved children. And so don't you dare hear all these commandments without first receiving the identity. You are a beloved child. Christians, the, the power of your obedience springs from your identity, as one writer says. The power of your obedience springs from God's affection for you, beloved, adopted, raised with Christ, reminded often of the height and the breadth of the love of Christ. Isn't it interesting for you that even in his most difficult, his most stubborn, his most wayward churches, Paul always reminds the believers about the love of Christ. You and I would simply club them over their head, right? We would grow sick of it. You idiots. Temple prostitution, really? Did you hear a word of the gospel that I was preaching, right? But what does Paul say? Don't you remember? Don't you remember experiencing the love of Christ? So Paul wants to reach down deep into their souls and pull out something beautiful about them. You are God's beloved child. One theologian says the affections are the mighty urges of our hearts. Our affections ignite us. They kindle our spirits. They set us aflame. They determine how our hearts are tilted. And so Paul wants to tilt your affections towards Christ because only then... Only then your behavior will follow. So Paul is always reminding you and telling you, be who you are, be who you are, be who you are. The commandments of God simply reinforce who you're actually created and meant to be. Teenagers, you were created and meant to be in Christ, to live a life 
in Christ, and it's beautiful. And so Paul never tells you to be something other than you are. Paul never is to tell you to be at odds with your core identity. Be who you are in Christ is always the message of the Apostle Paul. So how do you walk away from sin? Number one, remember who you are and whose you are. Second way to fight sin, Paul says, walk in love. He says, walk in love as, or it could be translated, just as Christ loved us. Well, how did he love us? Verse 2, God gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here Paul is alluding to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We're in Genesis and Exodus. A sacrifice is described as a pleasing aroma for the Lord. So how do you walk in love? How do you do it? Well, you just got to pay for the person behind you at the coffee counter, right? That's what the world will tell you about walking in love. Paul says much, much more than that. This is what he tells you. For you to walk in love, there has to be an offering given and a death experienced. Think about it. For a sacrifice to arrive on the altar and for that aroma to go up to God, an offering has to be given that often costs you something and there has to be a death experience on that altar, a sacrifice. An offering given and a death experienced. Now do you understand why it's hard to love? Now do you know why the world cheapens by necessity the very concept of agape love? And so when you say, you know, as a Christian, I think we should just all love one another that we should just go out and love each other and live a life of love, be a loving person, I want to say 100%, right? 100% agree, but my question then is this, well, how do you do that then? And Paul gives you the formula. There must be an offering given and a death experienced. Isn't this what Jesus said? If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross daily. And so why... Do so many young people go off to college and fall off the wagon? Why do so many adults, to pick on us, have the same old patterns of sin year after year? One writer says this, Christian young men and women are too often ill-prepared for battle. Because they think that they should not have to struggle much with the temptation of physical lust and personal gain. Somehow we know intuitively that everything else in life that is great always comes with sacrifice and struggle. But when we come into the Christian life, we discount sacrifice and struggle to live the Christian life. And so the second way to fight sin is remember that fighting sin requires an offering given and a death experience. Struggle is a very part of the DNA of the battle. Sacrifice is required. Get off the mat. Get into the battle. This is the normal Christian life. Third way to fight sin. The next section, verse 3 through 6, Paul's going to address these moral commandments. And he's basically warning about three things. Lust, 
greed, and filthy talk. Paul's saying your identity should change the way you view your body as a sacred temple in the Lord, change the way you view your possessions from greedy to generous, and change the way you speak, that your mother tongue language, your vernacular language, your heart language should be the language of thanksgiving. So Paul addresses sexual immorality, not sexual immortality like our former youth pastor once said. Sexual immorality, which is here the word porneia, and impurity. Both of these words cover a wide range of sexual sins. And covetousness, which it can also be translated as greed. So why does Paul lump together lust and greed? And why does Paul counsel thankfulness as an antidote to these things, these two sins? Lust and greed, I would argue, are both self-centered in nature, whereas thankfulness is God-centered. Lust and greed both display discontentment at a heart level. It's a way of living that says, what God provides is not enough for me, whereas thankfulness is a way of cultivating contentment. Lust and greed are both indicators of not being satisfied with God's provisions. Whereas the very nature of thankfulness looks to God, says thanks to God for all that you have provided for me. And so the third way to fight sin, another tool in your tool belt, is to cultivate contentment, a God-centered thankfulness, which is the antidote to self-centered sins. Practicing thankfulness. I am so thankful for my spouse if you are married. I'm thankful for for my singleness if you're single. Can that kind of thankfulness be the antidote to sexual sins? And I'm thankful for your provision financially, oh God. Can that be the antidote to being greedy and covetousness of ever more and more and more things in life? And can I practice thankfulness as my heart language, replacing whatever sins of the tongue that plague me, whether filthy talk or all the other ways of speaking that do not honor the Lord. And so the third way to fight sin is to cultivate contentment by practicing God-centered thankfulness as a way out of these self-centered sins. Fourth way to fight sin is this. To recognize the nature of diminishing returns upon your sin. What do I mean by this? I'm going to hit you with something big, square between the eyes. I've said it before, but it's so important. I don't want you to miss this. I believe in the teleological nature of human behavior. Okay, what does that mean? Stay with me. I believe there is a telos. I believe there's an end goal that determines why we do what we do. A telos, an end, is where we get the word teleological. And so when I say I believe in the teleological nature of human behavior, there is always a reason why we do what we do. And so even in our sin, we are sinning because we believe deep down it will bring us the end goal of joy and happiness in life. Sexual sin, greed, 
We mistakenly think that these sins will bring us happiness, so we behave in accordance with our beliefs. Take even the sin of anxiety, which is plaguing our culture these days. People struggling with anxiety are often simultaneously wanting control over their lives. So people think, if I can control my environment, or if I can control the people around me, that will be a good uh, thing in my life, right? That will increase my joy and fulfillment and happiness in life. And so what all those sins have in common is the law of diminishing returns. The more you do the sin, the more you have to keep doing it to have any kind of temporal happiness in life. Greed leads to more greed. Porneia, sexual sin, leads to more and more of the same. Anxiety leads to more and more anxiety, does it not? How's that anxiety going for you? Let me get anxiety over this moment. Does that help that day? Does it help tomorrow? It just increases the, the anxiety, increases the sin. And so when Paul says this, look at verse 6. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul does not say the wrath of God will come in the future. Or the wrath of God will come one day. Paul is talking about a present reality. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sinner now. In the present time. In the present day, the wrath of God comes now upon these sins, already denying you the happiness and joy and the fulfillment with a life with God. So the fourth way to fight your sins is to recognize the law of diminishing returns. The wrath of God comes now for your sin and diminishes your joy and diminishes your happiness and fulfillment right now. Fifth and final way to fight sin is this. Paul's already said in verse 8, One time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. It's interesting, again, what Paul doesn't say. He says you, he does not say you will walk in the light, or you will have the light of Christ. The Bible says those in other places. But here, Paul says, now you are light in the Lord. It's a beautiful image. Jesus promises us in Matthew 13, verse 43, the righteous will shine <clears throat> like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And this is when we bring in Christmas, right? During Christmas time. That beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I ask you, what happened when Moses descended from Mount Sinai after being in the presence of the Lord? His face shone like the light of God. So Paul says here, but now you are light in the Lord. You become that which you bask in. You become that which you expose your life to. So I ask you, do you regularly bask in the presence of the Lord? And this is a promise that ends in verse 14. Paul says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Christ will shine on you. What a promise. That Christ will shine upon you, upon your life, upon your heart, upon your soul. All these moral exhortations of Paul comes with this beautiful, beautiful promise. This is not an Old Testament scripture. Paul seems to be quoting, most people think, a hymn or a spiritual song that was sung in the early church. But the promise is very clear. Christ will shine on your life. What a promise of joy and and beauty and power fills your life when Christ shines on you. So how do you end this passage? You come away, I hope, thinking it's all worth it. All the struggle, the sacrifice of walking away from my sin, it's worth it. Christ will shine on my life. May it be, O Lord. And so I don't want you going out the rest of this year, next year, relying on your willpower alone, gutting it out. You've got to take one of these keys from your tool belt. You have many tools at your disposal to fight sin. Right? Everybody has a plan until they get you know, hit in the head. Mike Tyson, right? You will get hit on the head. What tool will you reach for when that happens or when you're in the midst of temptation? So here are the five. An identity remembered. Remember who you are and whose you are. Remember a sacrifice is required. Remember that fighting sin requires an offering given and a death experienced. Third way to fight sin. Cultivate contentment. Can you begin to cultivate a God-centered thankfulness as a way of walking out of self-centered sins? And aren't all these sins mostly self-centered? Fourth, you recognize the law of diminishing returns. That as you walk in these sins, it's actually you're depriving yourself of joy and happiness and fulfillment right now. And fifth, don't you might remember a glorious, glorious promise that Christ will shine on you. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me today? Father, we, we thank you that you remind us so often of our identity. Father, you don't call us to be estranged from who we are, who we've been created to be, but actually following you, O oh Jesus, is actually walking in who we are and who we've been created to be in Christ. So we pray that you would help us to reach for different tools in the tool belt of our Christian journey, Lord, as we fight sin, as we walk away from sin, Lord, we remind ourselves often of our identity, the law of diminishing returns, the promise, all these tools that you have for us in our lives. And we ask it by the name of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Just before we do a quick final chorus here, um, let's turn our attention to the screens. If you want to watch um, the Trinity news, we will take up our offering as the video is played. And then I'll, we'll sing after that. Thanks, guys.
<laughs> Got a little smile at the end there. That's good. Come on, let's stand. We're just going to sing a simple chorus just to close. Um, let's sing Open the Eyes of My Heart. This is the opening song that we did. I'll just make this a prayer this morning. And open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Sing that again. Open the eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. is born, a son is given, a son is given, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, a son is given, he's the Messiah, and oh to see him, to see him high and lifted up, shining our voices. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. I want to see you. Right? A week to invite folks, neighbors, friends to our Christmas concert next Sunday night, 4 and 7. So I hope you do so. There's some cards for you to help visit. If you weren't here on November 13th when he celebrated a very short two-hour service, <laughs> I pray, uh, why don't you pick one of these shine brochures up, read through it, even if you're here. really challenge you to read through this all. There's some, some photos of the Fellowship Hall, what we're trying to do with the renovation of the Fellowship Hall right there in the lobby. Just take a look, pray about how you might be involved in this vision, the Fellowship Hall, all that the Lord is doing among us. If you uh, need some prayer, there's going to be a prayer team right here after the service. Maybe you need to walk away from some sins. Maybe you just need to come to Christ. Maybe you just need prayer for the journey. There's people praying here after the service. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.